Good morning, Grace. I'm ready for Christmas. I don't know about you guys. That helped me. But think about some of the words from our sung worship this morning. I, I looked at, I cheated and I looked over the list before they came out. Here's words that I associate this time of year, Advent, Christmas, hope, desire, joy, wonder, rejoice, glorious, majestic, hallelujah. I'm thinking about the line that, that Kenny actually uh, in the email for the Advent, it's, it's my honor to kick off our Advent series as we start to think towards Christmas, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation. And in the email that, that Kenny sent those of us that are participating in this round, it, it, it read like this, we're going to help our people marvel at the glory and the wisdom of the incarnation. I've thought about that because I don't know about you, but sometimes marveling is not my heart's response when it comes to this time of the year. It's like my, my Marvel motor takes a while to get geared up, right? I've got to like prime it and try to start it a couple of times. And sometimes I feel like that, and I hope I'm not alone in this. I feel like that as I enter this season, I can almost, I'm not that old, but I guess I'm getting older now. I feel like grumbling is typically my start more than marveling. Like, oh, it's so busy. Oh, we've got all these parties. Who, do any people complain about parties? Oh, we've got so many parties. I have work parties and church parties. We complain about buying gifts and receiving gifts. I'm pretty good at small talk. I think I'm actually quite good at small talk. I never know how to answer this question. Are you ready for Christmas? It's like, well, are you asking a financial question? Do I have enough money saved for Christmas? Are you asking some sort of emotional question? Do you really want me to open that door? Or is Christmas like, is there a series of tasks that I must accomplish before Christmas can make it here that I wasn't aware of? Am, am I responsible for bringing Christmas? I'm going to make a reference that's, I, I know it's only going to hit those of us that are sort of my age, but that is, Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live used to play a character called Grumpy Old Man. And the whole point of Grumpy Old Man was that he would complain about the things that were today and how convenient they were. And he would say, well, we liked them the way they used to be. That's how they were. And we liked it. And sometimes I feel like entering into this season, I can turn into a bit of a grumpy old man. And I can say things like, really? Already having to hear Mariah Carey? telling me that all she wants for Christmas is me. <laughs> I don't want to hear that again. That's why I think this sort of a series is so helpful because if grumbling or lack of appreciation or being tired, right, so there might be good reasons that somebody enters this season with a little bit of what we could call tired head. I had a friend that used to say, if you talked about something, he's like, I just have tired head about that subject. And sometimes I think some of us can enter into the season with tired head, and there may be good reasons for that. Maybe you feel like that Christmas is supposed to be a time where we pretend like everything's wonderful and that we're all happy and that the world is a wonderful, great place. And maybe in your particular place where you're at in your particular life, you can't fake that. Maybe that's why you have tired head right now. 
Maybe we buy into the culture's notion of Christmas, that, that Christmas is like Lucy says in the Peanuts Christmas, right? Jingle bells, you know, deck them halls and all that stuff. Santa Claus, ho, 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 mistletoe, presents. If that's what we think of Christmas, that might be a reason that we get tired head. So my task is simple, I feel like. I don't know that I'll do it well, but my task is to open the door for our hearts and our minds to reclaim the marvel of this time of year, specifically of the Incarnation. So if we have tired head, if we, if we become grumpy old people, if we don't appreciate fully moving into this time of year, I think the antidote is not going to surprise any of us. The antidote, the key to fighting Christmas tired head or recapturing Christmas marvel is to focus our attention on Jesus as he is revealed to us. And we're going to see that last bit's pretty important because sometimes we can think we're focusing on Jesus, but we're only focusing on a part of Jesus or a section of Jesus or one highlighted portion of Jesus' teaching, which somehow then causes us to miss marveling at who Jesus really is and as he has been fully revealed to us. So, if we want to ask our question, who is Jesus? Probably no better place to go than God's word. And within God's word, probably no better place to go than Matthew 16. You can go ahead and open it to us. Open it while we go. And this is a great place to look at this because it's exactly the point of conversation that Jesus is leading his disciples through is who am I? So we're going to be in Matthew 16 starting in verse 13. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. We're going to keep focus our attention on the first few verses, but I'll read through 20. Let me pray. We'll ask for the Spirit to help us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we go to your word and we need your help. And uh, some of us need your help to marvel at who Jesus is. Some of us need your help to even know who Jesus is. And all of us need your help to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The passage starts 
Jesus and his disciples, they're in more of a remote area. They're up north more so than where they typically are during their journeys around in the Gospels. And it's almost as if Jesus has removed his disciples from the busyness of their normal daily activities to ask this question, hey, what are the rumors going around about me? What are people saying about me? I think it's interesting the things that get edited out. We know from the Gospels there's lots of things that were said about Jesus that didn't show up in this response. Right? For example, at some point, people thought Jesus was teaching with a demonic possession. John 7, among other places. Other people said at times, he has a demon and he's insane in John 10. In Mark 3, it's even reported that his family thinks that he's out of his mind, that he's crazy. At one point, Jesus says about himself, they say about me, I'm a glutton, I'm a drunkard. Some people say he's leading people stray. Herod at one point thought he was the resurrected John the Baptist. So there's many number of ways that the disciples could have answered, who do people say that I am? Well, they, they think you're crazy. They think that you're an agent of Satan. They think that you're, they don't know what to do with you, Jesus. That's basically what any of those responses could have been. Those would be responses that we could classify as like, you know, just out in left field. Those are way off target. Jesus is no, in no way connected to satanic power. The responses that the disciples give are what we call more like partial truth responses, right? So Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The way that Jesus typically ref referred to himself, particularly in the Gospels generally and specifically in Matthew leading up to this point, Jesus' self-title is often Son of Man. The disciples responded. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Naming these prophetic people, it's a partial truth. There's something about Jesus that he is a prophet. He's going to fulfill that role of prophet to the point that we no longer need a prophet. And there's even more partial truth than that in this claim because all of these are known to be to the current audience people that are connected in some way with the coming Messiah. Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist role. So the partial truth that the rumors are that are referenced by the disciples are, well, you are a prophet in some connection with the coming of the Messiah, really starting to get much closer to the truth than what we see from the original responses that I said could have been that don't come out. And there's plenty of other partially true responses that the disciples could have given as well. I was looking through, particularly in Matthew, the Pharisees, when they come and ask Jesus a question, most often would reference Jesus as teacher, teacher, and then ask a question. Partial truth. Jesus is a teacher. He's more than a teacher. Jesus is a prophet. He's more than a prophet. People would approach Jesus and ask him questions, calling him rabbi, rabbi, partial truth. Jesus is a rabbi. He is more than a rabbi. 
Then we get to the point of the story where the point of why Jesus even asked the first question comes out. He's really not that worried about the rumors, right? It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, let's talk about me a little bit here. What everyone's saying is, no, no, let's talk about me a little bit here. I want to make sure you're getting it. Because he's prepped the soil and now he turns straight to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Not the crowds, not the passerbyers, not the enemies, not the Pharisees. Who do you say that I am? It's the question that we can, as we're facing the scripture this very morning, realize is being asked of us. Who do we, who do you individually say that Jesus is? Peter responds, but we see throughout other places in the Gospels that Peter sometimes is speaking out as sort of like um, making much of himself. But most of the time when Peter responds in a context like this, he's a representative. He's speaking what the other disciples say. So Peter isn't so much showcasing, I'm the know-it-all, I'm the the teacher's pet. He's, He's speaking for the disciples, and in some way he's speaking for us when he says... To the response, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a beautiful response. I think it's helpful even to realize that the disciples, and Peter particularly, haven't always gotten Jesus right. Right? There are plenty of other times, even in the narrative before we show up here, that they get Jesus wrong. Remember when Jesus comes walking to them on the water and they see him and they think he is a ghost. Who do you say that I am? Well, I used to think you were a ghost. <laughs> but now I see more clearly. I think that's part of what we're seeing here. James and John and Mark 10 asking Jesus, hey, make sure we get the really good spots in the kingdom Overall, within the disciples, within those who are answering this honest question with the right answer, they still, after this point in the narrative, mess up who Jesus is with with inaccurate understandings of what this role is to be, the Christ. We see that even moving forward whenever they come to arrest Jesus and someone cuts off an ear and someone's ready to have the swords. And there's, so there's, there's a moment of clarity which Jesus references, right? Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The interesting thing about this particular passage, when Peter says you're the Christ, the Christ is just the word for Messiah, and up until this point in Matthew, that word has been used very little. It's been used, it's, it's, I think it's six times, if my count remembers. And most of those are from the early, early chapters of Matthew, where the author is kind of setting up genealogy and says, here's where the Christ comes from. But this has not been addressed. Jesus has not yet in Matthew been addressed as the Christ until this very point. And after this, there are ten times that Jesus is the title of the Christ is being more deliberately placed on Jesus. So even in the way Matthew unfolds to us, this is the moment that the readers pick up on, oh, Jesus is the Christ. There's hints before that. But this is the moment the word gets used, attributed to Jesus. You're the Christ. 
You are the son of the living God. Interesting, that, that structure is almost exactly the same structure that the uh, high priest asked Jesus in Matthew later on, tell us truly, are you the Christ, the son of God? Missing the word living only. So the exact proclamation, the exact confession of Peter is exactly somehow what the high priest has heard. Well, this is exactly what, if Jesus is claiming this, then we should, convince, we should convict him to death. There is no doubt that this is a messianic and important title. I think it's helpful. For me, at least, it's helpful that this understanding of the disciples that Peter represents is a growing understanding. They've messed him up in the past and exactly who Jesus is and what the Christ is to do. They get it right at this moment and they mess it up in the future as well. And I think there's something about that that allows me to realize, okay, we now have the benefit of the full story of the revelation of the word of God to know the whole story, but there might even still yet be times where we can mess it up. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about because I think it's one of the reasons that we can lack appropriate marvel to the revelation of the incarnation because we can mess it up as well. Sometimes we can mess it up in the exact same way that the people in the Bible mess it up and sometimes we can mess it up in our own unique ways. Here's one that's very similar, right? One of the ways that people missed Jesus was they just sort of thought he was a good guy, right? In John 7, they literally say about him, he's a good man, but he's leading the people astray. He's a good guy. He's a pretty good guy. In John 6, Jesus makes this claim, right? I am the bread sent from heaven. And people say about him, well, wait, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph, isn't this just sort of the Jesus, like, isn't this just the good guy that we know? The passage is kind of funny because in John 6 alone, it starts off with Jesus feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, and then making a long claim about himself being the true bread that comes from heaven that if people eat upon, they'll never go hungry again. And then the response is, wait, isn't this just kind of little Jesus? He used to ride his scooter up and down the street. Remember, have his friends come over. Don't we miss Jesus for the same reason sometimes? Not just culturally. Yeah, culturally, I think this is a way that we miss Jesus. Oh, he's, he's, a, good, he's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a good guy. But I think even individually or even as a church, we can sometimes miss Jesus in the same category. We can forget that he is the fully God, fully man, brought to earth for our salvation. So that's a similarity of a way that we can miss Jesus by just thinking he's a pretty good guy. What are some other misconceptions? I kind of have thought of a couple of categories, ways that we can miss Jesus. So I'm going to list 10 for those of you who write these down, but I'm not going to, and then I'm going to go to a whole other sort of categorization that I think might be 
uh, probably more dangerous, if not equally dangerous. But here's just, off, as I've been thinking the last couple of weeks, here's 10 ways that I think we can have a misconception of who Jesus is, which then will actually cause us to not marvel at his incarnation because we're not fully getting. And some of these are completely false, and some of these have some layered of truth. Here's one misconception. The first one I think of is the disappointed authority figure. We might think of Jesus as nothing more than just sort of looking down at us and kind of shaking his head. We can't constantly feel like we can't measure up, constantly feeling like we're not good enough. Maybe some of us think Jesus is nothing more than a good luck charm, right? Start my day with Jesus, I'm going to have a good day. But somehow Jesus is uh, like a, a... a lucky rabbit's foot or something like that. Some of us may think of Jesus as like the overly enthusiastic referee looking for every opportunity to blow the whistle and call a foul. Nope, you broke the law, you broke the rule, boop, out. As if Jesus is just sort of following us around at all times, looking for whenever we sin, either by omission or commission. And then you take the Sermon on the Mount on top of that, that he's not only looking at our actions, he's looking at the states of our heart, (laughs) blowing the whistle, calling us out of bounds. Some of us might see Jesus primarily or almost exclusively as a life coach or a wealth manager. How to win at life. Jesus came to show us how to be successful, how to be the, earn the admiration of our peers. Some of us may think of Jesus primarily in medical terms as sort of that alternative doctor slash healer selling some snake oil. If you can just get a little bit of Jesus in you, then you're going to not have to worry about these health issues that Jesus is somehow primarily, perhaps even exclusively, the best medication you can put in your body to keep yourself from suffering physically. Some people may think of Jesus uh, primarily with a view of him with uh, bullets over his shoulder and leading a revolution, right? the revolutionary Jesus. That, that revolution could just be cultural, It could be political, it could be spiritual, but it's primarily sort of a a freedom fighter image that we might have of Jesus. Might have a view of Jesus where he's just sort of a wise guru, a wise philosopher. Maybe even he's like the best at whatever it is you do in your field. I've heard, I've heard people I respect highly thinking about and talking about Jesus, and it's almost, I mean, they, they weren't intentionally watering Jesus down only to this point, but like, oh, he's kind of the smartest person that's ever done your job. Well, that's probably true, but that's certainly not all that Jesus is. Some of us might view Jesus as an impartial, non-empathetic judge sitting distance from us with his hands crossed. He's going to hear our case out. But when it comes time to make a decision, there will be no pity. There will be no empathy for us in our situation. It will just be the judge giving his word. Sometimes we may think of Jesus, this is the ninth one if you're, taking lit, if you're, if you're writing these down. That successful sibling that you can never live up to, Right? 
man, I had to be the little brother to Jesus. He always got A's and he never cheated and he never cussed and he never grumbled or whatever else. And I'm never going to live up under that shadow. Some of us might think, here's the 10th one, that Jesus is the overly emotional, intimate therapist, right? We can spill our guts to and he's just like, "Mm, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, just empathy, care. Maybe that Jesus lacks strength. Maybe that Jesus lacks other aspects. I think equally dangerous to these sorts of misconceptions of Jesus, because there's some truth in those, is what I would call a second category. It's, it's, it, the more I've thought about it, it's, it's like a cartoonish figure of Jesus, or maybe it's even of some of Jesus' teaching. And by cartoonish, I'm thinking more in terms of like political cartoons, right? Where, they, where they'll take a character and they'll exaggerate one feature, like maybe it's their forehead that gets really long, or their nose gets really big, or their chin gets really long. And you take this cartoonish figure and you take one aspect of them and you blow it out of proportion to the point that that's the only noticeable things. And this is what I think is very dangerous that we tend to do even within ourselves with Jesus, and our culture does it as well. When I was in college, I did a lot of uh, church camp uh, counseling and things like that. And one I remember, I was thinking about this last, this last week. I went to a church camp, and this one was a, was a pretty good experience because the leaders would come in about two days ahead of the high school and junior high kids, and I was in college. And they would have, like, leadership team building time and, you know, try to get us all on the same page. And one of the exercises, and I don't recall how they set it up, and they might have set it up really well, but the setup was something like write down the primary way that you view or interact with God right now, right? Well, man, this was, I was probably 20 years old. I was really into theology. I was really studying. And so it was easy for me as, like, God is teacher. And then I remember a girl that I was sort of partnered up with, we were going to, like, lead together. She very quickly said, God as father. And it just, back then, I lacked maturity. I lacked all kinds of things. I wanted to debate her about, no, 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 God's primarily teacher. (laughs) I can give you 13 reasons why teacher's better than father. Father, right? Without ever even asking her what was going on in her life that would cause that to be an important category for God. So there's nothing dangerous about this sort of exercise in and of itself, but I'll tell you what it did for me at 20 years old. Cocky, theologically driven, Jason at 20 years old used this view of God as teacher to somehow think myself better than the girl who thought of God as father. And so what I think is happening here is some sort of a cartoonish figure. It's as if I I took this one teaching of Jesus, love God with your mind, and I blew that one out of proportion to the point that it gave excuse for pride. It gave excuse for being judgmental about someone's relationship with God. And I think that is illustrative. I think we all do something like that at times, and our culture certainly does, right? So if, if I take a passage like Matthew twenty two thirty seven, love God with your mind, to somehow allow that to become a cartoon towards a pride, that might not 
An antidote to that might be Matthew 22, where Jesus is saying, love your neighbor or as yourself. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you be judged. But someone else could take those passages and turn those into a cartoon. This is our favorite cartoon of Jesus that our culture likes to say is, oh, well, Jesus says, don't judge. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, we should never call anyone a sinner. Therefore, we should never label anything as sinful because Jesus said, don't judge. That's probably the most popular cartoon of Jesus that you're going to interact with, not just outside the church, even within the church, even within those of us who claim Jesus. We can, we can blow this one teaching of Jesus out of proportion to the point that we can forget something like, no, in Mark 1, when Mark tells us Jesus' message was, repent and believe in the gospel. Someone might take that passage and allow that one to become a cartoon, Right? to become angry or spiteful or judgmental. And they need to be reminded of something like Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful, so they will receive mercy. It's almost like, it's almost all these cartoons kind of come and go. They, it's this sense in which we overemphasize one aspect of who Jesus is or one teaching of Jesus and we exclude these others. We're not thinking about them all and we're not keeping them all in our mind at the same time. Allows us to sort of present a Jesus to our own liking. I like to think of Jesus in this way. And you like to think of Jesus in that way, and that's okay. You have your Jesus, I'll have mine. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't come like that, right? Jesus isn't a smorgasbord to take a little bit of jello, mix it with my whatever else, right? Jesus comes revealed as one thing. We don't get to choose how we take Jesus which parts of Jesus we like better, which ones we're going to overvalue, which ones we're going to undervalue, which parts of the teachings of Jesus we think are less important than others. And Jesus used strong, strong language to those who oppose him. I've heard of people who then, as believers of Jesus, allow those strong languages to become self-condemning to them. Right? Have you ever run into someone who cites the passage that those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit can never taste heaven and then they tell you with a broken heart, that's what I've done. I'm, I guess I'm going to hell now. I don't have a chance because they've, they've somehow used the teachings of Jesus themselves to cast a cloud over their discouragement or their depression or their theological quandary and we want to go to them and say, yeah, but what about Matthew 11? Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I cited this passage of someone that made this claim and it's as if they're like, yeah, yeah, that one's not for me. No, it doesn't work that way. This one's for you. So I want us to think for the last few minutes when Jesus points his finger and says, who do you say that I am? Do you have a cartoonish figure of Jesus? Maybe you've done a study at some point in your life and you really, really care 
a lot about truth. Well, maybe that allows you to have a cartoonish figure of Jesus that needs to exercise mercy. Or maybe you have experienced some things in your life and you're really drawn to these sorts of passages of of kindness and the humble Jesus. And, And you need to pick up your diet a little bit on Jesus who talks about truth. And we don't have the option of just allowing ourselves to say, here's my Jesus lane. (laughs) Don't you bring other passages into my blinders that I have on who Jesus is. We don't want to miss Jesus because we have such a limited view of Jesus that we like to think about. We somehow shape and mold the editing. Now we want to look for Jesus as he is submitted to us. Then, once we get who Jesus is in this full-orbed reality as revealed to us, then I think it allows for us to do what we're going to do the next few weeks, and that is to marvel at the incarnation. Marvel that... This Jesus, this this Christ, this son of the living God is here. He's found in this dirty, smelly place called earth with dirty, sinful, smelly people like us. That should blow our mind in and of itself before we even start understanding why and how and all. But just the that, that Jesus came is shocking because I think we can be a little bit entitled as Christians, can't we? We can just kind of think, oh, well, those of us who've grown up in the church, I've always heard Jesus came to die for me. So why did Jesus come? Oh, I know the answer. He came to die for me. Okay, pause for a second. Let that blow your mind a little bit. The very fact that this Jesus would enter this realm is something extraordinary. So I think only once we really get who Jesus is as he's fully revealed to us without our cartoonish examples or exaggerations, we try our best to constantly be taking in a steady diet of who Jesus is and allowing ourselves to to explore those other options and make sure that we're always feeding it with God's word. For my final application, just that's it, Right? Get Jesus from God's word. Glenn, you're not going to like this, but uh, my dear friend Glenn Chandler sits on the back corner back over here. And those of you who sit back there know and love Glenn. Those of you who sit over here may not. Glenn joined the church at the same time Amanda and I joined the church. He's a steady figure at this service in that exact corner. And I always get to spend some time with him right around Thanksgiving and Easter because he joins uh, those with our families. Um, There's a number of us that get together. And uh, I asked Glenn... Uh, this last week, I said, here's what I'm preaching on. How do we marvel Jesus better? And Glenn's older than me. I'm not going to out how old he is, but he's got more maturity than me. And it it was beautiful because he he gave a couple of responses, but you could tell he wanted to think on it more. And he said, I'm going to email you with that. It was awesome. 24 hours later, I get an email from Glenn that not only is suggesting that he and I should run for political office, I don't know if we're going to do that or not, Glenn, but he thinks we might be a part, an unstoppable party. I think we'd be a party of two, but we'll, I don't know how far. 
I don't know what I expected from Glenn. I think maybe if I had said, hey, what's Glenn going to say on how to remind ourselves to marvel properly at Jesus? I think I might have thought it's going to have like different spiritual disciplines, different avenues. He gave me a list of verses, which is so perfect. He said Luke 2, Ephesians 1, 4, Philippians 2, 5, and 8. Then he says, I love this, in short, it's the truth of Scripture that leads me to marvel at his birth. I guess it's the Bible that answers, who do men say that I am? Beautifully said. Thank you, Glenn, for blessing us all with that. And so now, as we enter into the next few weeks of Advent, and we're thinking about who do you, who do I say that Jesus is. There may be some of you in here that you just don't know. You don't know Jesus. You're not converted. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus. You haven't recognized that the Christ is the one who came to die in your place so that you might be the righteousness of God and that he might take on the punishment that our sin deserves. That might be you this morning. If it is, there will be people up in the front I'll be sitting over here. We'd love to talk to you about that and pray with you about that because now, today could be the day to be able to answer this question the same way that Peter answers the question and now the church answers the question, who do you say that I am? I am Jesus. You are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And for the rest of us, as we consider this Christmas season, we pray that we could rightly consider and understand who Jesus is so that we can walk into this season with our mouths open, marveling at the fact that Jesus came. He came to save sinners like us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the incarnation. And God, I pray this would be a season and this would be a series that allows us to rightly carry you in to our everyday lives so that we can not only be filled with the wonder and amazement that comes at Christmas season, but that we can love others well because we get this sense that we are children of the Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.